Well, good morning. Um, my name is Mike, and I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. So today we continue our delve into our values, those things we hold onto as being of utmost importance to us here at Trinity. I think we all would agree that a key ingredient to a healthy relationship is good communication. Things can go south pretty quickly in a marriage, in a friendship, a job, or just living life in general, if there is no, or at best, poor communication. Today we're going to focus on communication as it relates to our most important relationship, and that is with God. We are instructed numerous times in God's Word to pray. Simply put, prayer is talking with God or communing with Him who made us. We have an awesome privilege to br of bringing our deepest thoughts, feelings, emotions, secrets, needs, and wants directly to God. I'm going to spend a little time on what Jesus has to say about a couple of aspects of prayer. And then Gary is going to focus on the Lord's Prayer. You get two for one today, Gary and me. So prayer was of vital importance to Jesus. There are over 38 times what, uh, recorded in the Bible when we find Jesus praying to the Father and many more occurrences of him teaching about prayer. We see the anguish Jesus felt when on the cross he felt that separation from God when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see Jesus on a number of occasions slipping away to a quiet place to pray. We see him earnestly seeking God's, God in the garden just before his arrest, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. We could spend an entire year studying what the Bible has to say about prayer, but today, we're just going to scratch the surface. Jesus teaches us that we should persist and persevere in our prayers. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 18, verse 1 to 8. Luke prefaces the parable Jesus is about to give us with the purpose of the parable, and that is we should always pray and not give up. So Luke 18, verse 1, we read, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Always pray. We find that reinforced in Philippians 4, 6-7. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul also exhorts the church of the Thessalonians as he wraps up his first letter to them. In 1 Thessalonians we read, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you, uh, will for you in Christ Jesus. To pray without ceasing is more than an ongoing dialogue or conversation with God. It's an ongoing connection 
with him. It's just like going on a long hike in the woods with a really good friend in which conversation just naturally flows. There's moments of great discussion and moments of comfortable silence. We don't need to be on our knees or our, our eyes closed to pray without ceasing. It can happen anytime and anywhere. Driving in the car, as long as you don't close your eyes. Skiing, walking, standing in line, wherever and whatever you're doing. One author aptly puts it this way. The simple truth is, we need God. Every minute of every day. We need God. We need his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his wisdom and direction. There will never be a time we don't need to pray because there will never be a time we don't need our Heavenly Father. Jesus elaborates more about persistent prayer, never giving up, by giving us this parable. So carrying on in Luke 18, verse 2 and 3, we read, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. A couple of things to note here. First, the judge was not well suited for his role, for sure, marked by his disinterest in both God and man. The plaintiff in this parable was a widow, one of the most marginalized groups in society at that time. Apparently, in those days, if someone was wronged, they had to make an appeal to the court for a hearing. So, for example, if someone stole something of yours, you had to bring a charge against them in court. It was not left to the police to take care of things. Widows had no one to go to bat for them, and so often were taken advantage of. Seeking a hearing in court would have been an extremely difficult thing for a widow to do. Jesus paints a picture in this parable of extremes. A rotten judge versus a poor woman who is a widow. She was, however, persistent. She kept coming to the judge, making her plea for justice. Let's find out how this ends. In Luke 18, 4-5, we read, For some time, and that's the judge, he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. The widow triumphs. She wears down the judge to the point he relents and hears her case and supports her. Mind you, it was purely from a selfish motive that the judge relented and not because of his integrity. Another translation says, she's driving me crazy. To ensure his listeners get the right point, Jesus summarizes the parable for us. And note, this is one of the few parables he provides the interpretation for. Luke 18, 6-8, we read, Jesus said, And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust, says, unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? 
I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus explains a few key points. First, the widow in the parable represents believers, the children of God. Secondly, the judge is the total antithesis or the opposite of God. Jesus is using the stark contrast between God and the judge to accentuate the point. God cares for his people dearly and is totally just. The third point, if the unjust judge yields to the widow's persistence, how much more will our loving Heavenly Father, who wants the best for us, hear our cries for help? Jesus reminds us not to give up hope. How many times have we given up praying for someone or something when we just don't seem to get the answer, or at least the answer we want? Jesus tells us to never give up. In God's perfect timing and plan, he will either change our hearts to align with his will, or he will provide the answer. Why does Jesus end the parable with the question, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus talks a lot about faith. When the, when the disciples couldn't drive out a demon out of a boy, they asked Jesus, why couldn't we do that? Jesus says in Matthew 17, because you have so little faith. I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. In particular, as it relates to our prayer life, after Jesus caused the barren fig tree to wither and was asked by his disciples, how did you do that? He said in Mark, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt uh, in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Have you got a mountain in your life that needs moving? Persistence, perseverance, belief, and faith. Um, thank you. <laughs> Um, key, key aspects, key teachings from Jesus. In the Bible, there are many examples of the persistent, persevering prayers offered, offered up in faith. We've got examples, Job, uh, Isaiah, Moses, Hannah, Simeon and Anna, Nehemiah, Paul, Jesus. It goes on and on. Throughout history, we have examples as well of persevering saints in their prayer life in which amazing things have happened. There's a couple of more modern-day examples I'd like to tell you about. George Mueller is one such person that comes to mind. His life is such an amazing testimony to the power of prayer, the prayer of faith, and persevering prayer. 
I want to take a few minutes to talk about this man's life. Born in 1805, he lived his adult life in Bristol, England. His service to the Lord started as a minister to two congregations. What set him apart was his resolve to trust only in God for his needs, and therefore he declined um, any regular salary offered from the church, but elected to bring his needs to the Lord in prayer. I'm not looking at Sean here. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, Wayne? <laughs> anyway, um, so he, his, Mueller had a heart for orphans and was moved to pray for God's leading, if it was God's will to do so. At age 31, December 5th, 1835, George prayed for a thousand pounds, a place and workers to start an orphanage. Four months later, having secured all that was needed through prayer only without making any public appeal for money, um, he opened his first orphanage, housing 26 children. A year later, he opened a second home, housing an, an additional 30 children. Sixty years had passed, and he had built five orphanages, housing 2,000 children each year. And just to put things in perspective, the Rocky View Hospital, for example, has 650 beds. The Weston Downtown, the Weston Hotel, has 525 rooms. George's orphanages housed 2,000 people in, at, at one time. Before his death, over 10,000 children were take, cared for. Over 2,000 of them made a commitment to Christ. There were many days when things were desperate. They were down to their last penny. The cupboards were bare. Children to feed, bills to pay. One could say they had mountains to move. But God would provide amazing answers to prayer. For example... One day, with nothing in the cupboards, a milkman whose wheel fell off his cart right outside the orphanage's door offered his entire milk delivery to the children so he could repair his wheel. That very same morning, a baker knocked on the door with loaves of bread for the children. He told George the Lord had moved him to bake bread all night for the children. Countless times, someone would drop by and offer money often the exact amount needed for a bill that was due. George kept a detailed journal of his prayers and their answers. There were over 50,000 entries, and over 5,000 of them were immediate answers to prayer. The prayers covered big issues and small, from supply of land and money to build the five large orphan houses, to daily food, for over 2,000 people, down to finding a lost key or a misplaced document. George took everything to God in prayer. He said, quote, I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk about, when I lie down, when I rise up, and the answers are always coming. His secondary purpose for establishing the orphanages was to care for the spiritual, emotional, and physical needs of the children. However, interestingly enough, his primary purpose was to provide a real-life example 
to prove God is real, God is trustworthy, and God answers prayer. Simply put, he built orphanages the way he did to help the way he did to help Christians trust more fully in God. He spent the last 28 years of his life traveling the world over, retelling what God had done over the years at the orphanages, encouraging and strengthening believers in their faith and challenging many others to place their faith in Christ. One of his famous quotes is, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Fast forward to World War II, 1940. It was an incredibly dire point for, of the war for Britain and her allies. Nazi Germany had swarmed over Europe They had invaded France and had pushed the British and French forces to the northeast coast of France. Hundreds of thousands of Allied troops were trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk. With the English Channel behind them and the German Air Force and Panzer Divisions bearing down on them from the land and air, things looked bleak to say the least. The fate of the war hung in the balance. Realizing the dire situation, the King of England, George VI, called for a national day of prayer on May 26, 1940. He instructed the people to turn back to God in a spirit of repentance and plead for divine help. Millions of people all over the country poured into the churches to pray. The results were immediate. Three amazing things happened. First, Hitler, for some reason, ordered the ground advance to halt for two days. Second, a storm of extraordinary fury grounded the entire German air force. And third, a great calm had settled over the English Channel for several days, the likes that had never been seen before. All this allowed British ships, commercial fishing boats, and pleasure boats between 800 to 1,200 of them in total, to land at the beaches of Dunkirk and rescue the trapped soldiers. Initial guesstimates figured at best 20,000 soldiers could be saved through this. In actuality, 338,000 soldiers were saved and rescued from the beaches over three days. The rescue was dubbed the miracle at Dunkirk. It turned the tide of the war, effort from an early defeat to eventual victory five years later. Prayer is vital. Prayer is powerful. Jesus challenges each one of us to pray with persistence, perseverance, and faith. We're going to turn it over to Gary. morning, everyone, and thank you, Vern. I'm not mic'd up. (laughs) 
one of the things that um, often happens with us elders, we have our meetings in the back here in the library around the oval uh, table, and uh, Sean is off, Pastor Sean's off, often encouraging us uh, for each of us individually to grow our spiritual lives, and one of the ways he encourages us to do that is by reading various books, and uh, recently he has us reading one on elders, um, and uh, I've noticed every once in a while a, a very sort of touchy subject comes up, and it has to do with elders being able to stand in front of the congregation and preach. <laughs> I've noticed everyone kind of looks down and loses eye contact with Pastor Sean, and I think it would be even funnier if, uh, if you could imagine a little comic book caption above each of our heads what our thoughts are. I can't speak for the other guys, but I know mine would go something like this. Hold on a second, yeah, Pastor Sean. I didn't go to seminary. I most certainly haven't studied Greek, and this is way out of my comfort zone. So it was a little easier for Mike to be and I to be able to team up together <laughs> and and do this. And uh, I think about a month ago, I came, I met uh, Pastor Sean here at, at church, and he gave me a stack of books. I think eight of them on prayer. I went directly to Mike's house, said, "Yeah, you take half." Then I got home, <laughs> and my wife handed me three more. And I, <laughs> and I can tell you, in the last month, I haven't studied. Uh, or worked as hard since I was in university many uh, moons ago. So it's been very personally challenging for me, I can tell you. I remember another time in my life when I was way out of my comfort zone. It is also the most powerful example of prayer that I've ever witnessed in my life. One off-season early in my career, I was probably in my mid-20s, I received a phone call from the Pittsburgh Steelers Athletes in Action team chaplain, Hollis Half. Hollis was a spiritual mentor to my friend Steve Sellers, as well as many of my Steeler teammates, me included. On that phone call, Hollis asked me if I would consider giving my testimony at the upcoming Billy Graham crusade in Pittsburgh on a Friday night where they were expecting more than 60,000 teenagers in Three Rivers Stadium, the same stadium I played football in every Sunday afternoon. I remember Hollis acknowledging that this was a pretty intimidating ask, but somehow he thought I was the perfect stealer for this role. He made some joke about nobody being able to handle pressure better than me. He said, that's what you do for a job. <laughs> My immediate feelings of intimidation and inadequacy were balanced by a strong conviction of what an amazing opportunity and platform this was for me to share what God has done in my life to 60,000 young Steeler fans. Even though that Friday night was about 35 years ago, I remember it very vividly. After I gave my testimony, Billy Graham approached the podium. I remember his first words were, let's pray. Boy, could he ever pray. I'm sure many in that massive football stadium had similar emotions to me. It felt like God 
was right there next to him. It was that powerful. I literally thought that God was going to come out of the sky. The Holy Spirit most certainly filled that football stadium that night. When he had finished speaking, he gave an invitation for the audience to respond. Hundreds of teenagers started flooding out of the stadium onto the football field as he continued to pray. Pretty soon, the hundreds became several thousand who made a decision to become followers of Jesus. This reminded me in the early, how in the book of Acts, in the early church, God was blessing the early church by adding to their numbers daily in the thousands. Not too many years ago, Billy Graham passed away, and he was given a full presidential state funeral that I watched for hours on TV. I remember one commentator saying, that it is quite likely that nobody since the Apostle Paul has had a greater impact for the kingdom of God than Billy Graham. Everything he did was centered around prayer. Oh, to be able to pray like that. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, who is all-knowing, all-powerful and all-loving, has provided us a direct way to communicate with him. We can pray because God is our loving Father, because Jesus is our mediator, giving us access to the throne of the universe, and because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. What a truly amazing and incredible gift that is, that we can come to Almighty God in prayer that we can talk to our Heavenly Father. So the practical question then becomes, even though we know that in God and the Gospel we have the spiritual resource to pray, how do we actually do it? Most scholars and theologians seem to agree that prayer does not come naturally to most and that it is very hard. I found the personal story of Tim Keller to be most encouraging given the fact that he had already been a pastor for many years in New York. Tim Keller says, and I quote, in the second half of my adult life, I discovered prayer. I had to. In the fall of 1999, I taught a Bible study class on the Psalms. It became clear to me that I was barely scratching the surface of what the Bible commanded and promised regarding prayer. Then came the dark weeks in New York after 9-11, when a whole city sank into a kind of corporate clinical depression. For my family, the shadow was intensified as my wife Kathy struggled with the effect of Crohn's disease. Finally, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. At one point during all of this, my wife urged me to do something with her we had never been able to muster the self-discipline to do regularly. She asked me to pray with her every night, every night. She used an illustration that crystallized her feelings very well. As we remember it, she said something like this. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medication, a pill, every night before going to sleep. 
Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget you would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we are facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it slip our minds. For both of us, the penny dropped. We realized the seriousness of the issue, and we admitted that anything that was truly a non-negotiable necessity was something we could do. That was more than 12 years ago, and Kathy and I can't remember missing a single evening of praying together, at least by phone, even when we have been apart in different hemispheres. Kathy's jolting challenge, along with my own growing conviction that I just didn't get prayer, led me into a search. I wanted a far better prayer life. This personal story from Tim Keller makes me believe that there's still hope for me <laughs> and perhaps all of us. This illustration really hit home to me, so Kay and I have committed to pray together every night. So then we are left with the very same question that the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke 11. And apparently it's the only time in the scriptures where the disciples used this phrase, Lord, teach us to pray. I find this very interesting given the fact that they've been with Jesus every day. They've witnessed him perform many, many miracles. And they ha have observed him many times remove himself from the chaos and the crowds and find a quiet place where he spends time praying to his Father in heaven. Yet they still seem to have no idea how to actually pray. Note before Jesus instructs them, he cautions them. And he says, don't be like the hypocrites who pray standing in front of the synagogue or on the street corners just to be seen. He tells them to go into a room and close the door and that, then pray. So let's dig a little deeper into the Lord's Prayer that one commentator calls absolutely supernatural. Jesus says to his disciples, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I have recited the Lord's Prayer hundreds of times in my lifetime including every day before school growing up in South Africa, as well as in the locker room before every football game I ever played in. That's four years of university and 23 years of professional football. That's a lot of Lord's prayers. Sadly, I must confess that most times it was probably very superficial and not actually and sincerely talking to Almighty God. Now let's break down the Lord's Prayer. Let's begin with our Father. This is very significant and this statement embraces relationships. God is not just my Father, 
lost my spot there. Sorry. God is not just my father, but our father. These two words remind us that we are all children of God and siblings to each other. When we pray, we must reject an individualistic mindset. We are part of a community of people who have the same access to God. We are family because we have the same loving father who art in heaven. This statement is about understanding God's power. He is in the heavens, and we are acknowledging that God is at the very top of the pecking order. He is most high. He is in control. His agenda always wins. He can do anything as he sees all, knows all, and directs all. God is as compassionate as he is powerful. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. Do we understand that this type of power is at our disposal? This should make us both bold and humble. This opening statement is followed by three petitions that all long for God's presence. Firstly, hallowed be thy name. This means I pray that your name will be honored and implies being more concerned with the advancement of God's reputation in the world than our own. The glory of God has come into the world in the person of Jesus. Hallowed be thy name therefore means that we are praying that everyone would respond appropriately to Jesus. Secondly, thy kingdom come. This is prayer for the success of the gospel in the world. We know the gospel has changed us, so we plead for the gospel to be extended to the ends of the earth. We are tired of the world we live in, and we long to be where God's rule is recognized and adored. God has promised this will happen, and this promise stokes our longing. Thirdly, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This means that we long to see God reign on earth in the same way he already reigns in heaven. We pray for God's will to be accomplished on earth, however he determines, even if it means our suffering, sacrifice, and death. Now, that's pretty heavy. We are praying for God's presence to be seen and enjoyed. Jesus teaches that God's presence always precedes his provision, and that his agenda is far better than ours. Then we move on to the three asks. Jesus invites us to ask for three things, provision, pardon, and protection. Firstly, give us this day our daily bread. He wants us to pray for daily bread, not weekly, monthly, yearly, or even a lifetime of bread. Jesus wants us to rely on God daily. The way we relate to food and possessions totally affects how we relate to God. Too much says that we don't need God, and too little means God is unconcerned. Secondly, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This request lies at the true heart of Christianity. This reminds us that peace with God always comes through pardon and forgiveness, never our performance. 
Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf is our only appeal for forgiveness. We are asking for forgiveness as often as we ask for bread. We do not earn it. In so doing, we are daily reminded of two things, our consistent feelings and God's eagerness to forgive. Therefore, to miss a day of praying this way is to spend a day where I'm tempted to think that God and I are okay because of my performance. Thirdly, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are asking God for protection from future sin, like pardon from past sin. Protection from future sin is found in Jesus. It must be given. One further comment is that when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, note how he used plural pronouns, give us, forgive us, and lead us. Jesus wants us to remember the needs of others, not just our own. This is one of the best ways to love our neighbor, even when they are out of sight. As I studied the subject of prayer this last month or so, there were many other thoughts that resonated with me. I had so many things hi highlighted in these books I was reading, and there are just a few more that caught my attention, tend to be exact. Mike actually co uh, covered a couple of them. As I already mentioned, prayer does not come naturally to most, and it is usually hard. Prayer takes practice. I think of my first professional football coach, uh, Coach Chuck Noll in Pittsburgh, uh, he was considered a football genius. He's in the Hall of Fame. He won four Super Bowls with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And one of the things he used to tell us players every day before practice as we were about to go on the field, he'd say, hey, guys, think of something that's hard for you, something that you do not do well, and go out on the field and practice it in order that you might become a better football player. And keep in mind, he was speaking to some of the best football players who've ever played the game of football. I think 12 of them are in the Hall of Fame. And he told them, practice what's hard. Prayer is also about being intentional. I could write a book on this subject. I know some things that I've been very intentional about in my life. It is not about expertise especially with fancy words. In fact, Jesus uh, warns against that. It's more about opening up and being real with God. It's about pouring out your soul, just like Job and David and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. Jesus reminds us that our prayers are measured by their strength and not their length. God inclines his ear to us. He truly and fully listens. Prayerlessness is spiritual suicide. Even when sometimes we don't know the exact words and how to pray, the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit will intercede for us and help us, Romans 8.26. Mike mentioned this one. One commentator says, Think of prayer like breathing. 
it's that vital. And finally, prayer is powerful because the all-powerful one is on our side. I would like to close this morning with this. We have, have such a wonderful recent example in our church with the seeking God's direction. The scriptures tell us how much Jesus loves his church. Coupled with all of us praying that God would direct Trinity's path, it is no wonder then that God blessed us with the result that none of us could have imagined even in our wildest dreams. My prayer for each of us today is that God would stir up in us an irresistible desire, I know he has in me, in each of us to spend more time each day in his presence in both reading the word and in prayer. As Billy Graham said, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that the God of the universe has given us a way that we can communicate with you. We thank you so much for this. Through the death of your son Jesus, you have made this possible for us. Father, forgive us for the many times we've all fallen short of not taking advantage of this amazing gift that you've given us. Father, I pray this morning that you would stir up in each of us a strong and new desire that each of us would commit more to spending time both in your word and in prayer. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.